Amen. Let us uh, turn now to Hebrews chapter 2, page 1276 in uh, most of the blue ESV Bibles. Hebrews, uh, James, and the epistles of Peter, the epistles of John. Hebrews uh, chapter 2. We'll be reading, considering verses 5 through 18. Hebrews uh, chapter 2. And then um, following this, we also have confessional reading from Lord's Day 5. Let us begin this morning with the Word of God, Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." So far, the reading, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's uh, turn now to the uh, confessions, faithful summary of God's word, Lord's Day 5, the last two question and answers of Lord's Day 5, page 206 in the forms and prayers. 
And uh, let us, uh, I'll read the questions. Let us together say the answers for 14, 15. Then we'll read also question and answer 16. Lord's Day 5 and Lord's Day 6 very much uh, go together. Beginning with question 14. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt of sin for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? One who is a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also true God. Why, question answer 16, must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin, but a sinner could never pay for others. It's a confession. We hold in common. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what subjects do you know a lot of information about? Do you know all kinds of information about cars, about baseball statistics, about books, about gardening, about your field of work? Well, the, the pattern of knowing information, especially if it's something like knowing information about your field of work, generally goes something like this. You, you know a lot of information and then uh, you can apply it and you can put it into practice. Some things like knowing baseball statistics, that, that doesn't really have much pra practical use. But many other things, right? You, you know it, you know all these things, and then you put it into practice. And the knowledge needs to come first, otherwise you're going to be uh, lost. What are you going to do if you go into work and you don't know how to do it? Uh, what would you, uh, how would you go about your work if you didn't know how to get into the piece of machinery and start it, etc., etc. Well, this very basic pattern of first knowing things and then putting it into practice, we see it again and again in terms of the Christian faith and in terms of the knowledge of Christian truth, which comes first and then leads to how this is going to impact our life and, and what we're going to do. We see this pattern again and again in the New Testament. There are, in general, theological truths packed into the early portions of the books of the New Testament. And then there is more of a, of a practical outflowing and ways that this impacts our life at the end of the New Testament books. This is the general pattern. And Hebrews is no exception to that pattern. Hebrews, too, is packed with theological truths. Some of them, we might use this word, very technical. 
We're speaking about one being who is God and who is also man. We're speaking about one person who has two natures. That's, that's not a simple truth to grab hold of. And the author of Hebrews, we might say, does not speak of it in simple language because you cannot speak of it in simple language. It's exalted language of truth. It is profound language of truth. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, this is one of those days as we're looking at a, an earlier chapter of one of the New Testament books when we, we dig into theological truth. Surely this has application in our lives and that's sprinkled even into this chapter and we'll, we'll talk about that. But mostly we're thinking about theological truths themselves this morning. I'm thinking about the theological truth of who Christ is. Who is this God? Who is man? And what does this mean? And so our theme this morning is that Jesus Christ came as true man to be the founder of our salvation. We're going to dig into this uh, truth with three points. He came with our nature. He came as our brother and he came as our helper. Now the author of Hebrews has just spent basically all of the first chapter speaking about how is there is this one Son of God whom he, God, this is 1 verse 2, has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Uh, in other words, Jesus Christ is truly God. And as the one who is truly God, he is surely superior to the angels. And that is the language of verse 4, have, have become much superior to angels. And then the rest of chapter 1 details how, uh, in a number of ways, Christ, the eternal Son of God, is superior to angels. Well, how is it then that after spending the whole first chapter telling us that Jesus is superior to angels, we now come into chapter 2 and we read, for example, in verse 9, that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. How can these things both be true at the same time? How do we put together Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2? Well, the preacher of Hebrews can and does speak in this way because Jesus is true God and Jesus is true man. He is that one mediator and deliverer that we must look for, as it says in question answer 15. One who is true and righteous man. And yet this one is also true God. Jesus Christ is not like us. He is one person. He has two complete and true natures. He is the exact imprint of God. He is truly man. He is superior to the angels. He is the one who took on our flesh and for a while was made lower than the angels. These things are both true in one person, in Jesus Christ. And the preacher of Hebrews uh, speaks of this truth 
while taking us back to the language of the Psalms and, and uh, Hebrews 2 verses 6 to 8 is a quotation of Psalm 8. Uh, psalm 8, which itself is uh, a psalm that's reflecting on the creation mandate of Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And so the situation and, and, the, and the point of, of the preacher of Hebrews can be summarized in this way. God gave a mandate to Adam, our first parent, all the way back at the beginning of creation. Man was to have dominion over creation. But that mandate was not fulfilled. We've never seen a perfectly obedient king. We've, we've never exercised dominion over this world as we were called to do. And so what do we need? Well, if we use the language of the Apostle Paul, we are all dead in the first Adam. We need the last Adam. We need one who is man to come in and to fulfill this command and to fulfill all of the commands of God. And so uh, by, by taking in Psalm 8 and, and this reflection of, of Genesis 1, the, the preacher of Hebrews is telling us, well, here is finally the one true man who fulfills that first command which was verbally given to Adam so long ago, who really does truly exercise dominion as he ought to do. And in being the, the perfect ruler over this creation, he is the one who will be the redeemer of, of all of creation is, is part of what's going on here. He is the one who is crowned. And he's crowned even in a specific way because he came to pay the penalty for all that the first Adam threw into disarray and, and decay. And so it is even especially, we see at the end of verse 9, through his suffering and death, that Jesus Christ is the perfectly crowned one. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You know, the, the exact language of Adam and last Adam used by the Apostle Paul in other places, that's, it's not the exact way that the author of Hebrews says it here, but it's, it's the same truth that is, is being spoken of. We have, we have failed to rule this world as we were called to do. We have failed to fulfill any of the commandments of God. So, who is it that we need? We need a true man to step in with true obedience to that first command and all of God's commands. And this is what Jesus Christ has done. And not only in perfect obedience, not only perfectly fulfilling it, but also taking the penalty of our failed obedience upon himself. And that's the suffering, that's the death, that's where the, the great crown of Jesus Christ is seen. Jesus could die because he really took on human flesh. Say, God cannot die. Jesus could die because he's not only truly God, he's also truly man. And in his humanity, he tasted death for everyone. Everyone who believes 
It's now under Jesus instead of under Adam. Well, why did he why did he do this? He he did it to to save us. He did it to call us brothers. That takes us to our second point. It takes us into the to the language of verse 10. The very reason why he came down, uh, performed all of this perfect obedience, fulfilled all of God's commands, died on the cross to pay the penalty for all the disobedience. He did this all in order that he could bring up many sons to glory. And so uh, Jesus Christ does not take this glory all for himself in, in this sense. No, he is the glorious one and he goes down to the depths and grabs hold of us and takes us out with him. He takes us to glory with him. So he is, this is the language of the end of verse 10, the founder of their salvation. And that uh, word founder, this is one of those, uh, this is one of those you know, we might say big words that has more than one meaning. And so if we go from one translation to another, uh, everybody has a different way to try to say it. The ESV says founder. Other, others have translated this pathfinder, pioneer, champion. Uh, the old King James said captain of our salvation. And so which, which one of those is right? Well, uh, brothers and sisters, I'm just going to say this is, this is a Greek word which includes both the idea of being the one who begins something, that's emphasized in the ESV translation, he is our founder, and at the same time, it emphasizes that it's one who leads others with him. And so that's the, the King James translation, captain. They're both good translations, and what's even better is probably to think of them both at the same time. We are lost in sin. We need a Savior. Christ comes down founds salvation, begins salvation, and is our captain leading us, carrying us, delivering us up into glory. This is, the, this is the language of our deliverance through the one Savior, Jesus Christ. And then verse 11, uh, again, comes back to what's repeated all throughout this, this chapter, that he does this as, as one who is like us, the one who sanctifies, the one who makes holy, Jesus Christ, and those who are sanctified, those who are made holy, all have one source. We are all of one stock. We are all of the same nature because he is not only truly God, he is also truly man. And then the end of verse 11, end of verse 12 and 13, becomes more personal. So we're, we're, we're speaking about great theological truths. And now what is the author of Hebrews doing at the end of verse 11 into 12 and 13? He's taking it and he's, and he's putting it into even more personal language. Or let's put it this way. It's not the easiest thing to even think about Natures and humanity and the absolute essential truth that Jesus Christ had to take upon our nature. And how many times in in, uh, in the last month have you just you know spoken about the fact that you are a human being and you have a human nature? This is just not something that we speak about all the time. Something that we speak about and think about more 
something which is one of the first words that we learn when we are children is the language of brother, sister, family. Those are some of the first concepts that we learn. These are, these are personal words. Okay. And that's, that's the movement that the preacher of Hebrews is making at the end of verse 11. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And now this is, this is something which is only true for the believer. And uh, to just jump ahead, uh, it is the offspring of Abraham, verse 16, that he helps. It is the offspring, the spiritual descendants of Abraham. It's the church. Or uh, we'll, we'll say this, we can paraphrase 11 into verse 12, he's not ashamed to call them brethren, the brothers and sisters of the church. So verse 12, I will tell of my name, I will tell of your name to my brothers, the brethren, the brothers and sisters of the church. And we know that because of the next phrase, in the midst of the congregation, and it's, you know, it's, the word congregation is used there because it's a quotation from, from an Old Testament text uh, from, uh, from Psalm 22. But, but the, the Greek word here is, is almost always translated church in the New Testament. It's, it's the word for church. It's ecclesia. And so for those who believe in the one who is true God and also true man, he does not only share our humanity, he also comes alongside us and he calls us Family. He calls us the family of faith. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. He does this while being the one perfect worshiper who leads us in showing us how to worship and trust God overall. And so again, I will put my trust in Him. Now it's a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. And essentially what is, what is going on here, the, the preacher of Hebrews is saying, look, Jesus is the one who shows us how to trust in God. If we, if we take one specific example of this, we might consider Jesus uh, just before his arrest and death uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane when he uh, prays in Luke 22, verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus Christ, in, in coming down, though he was co-equal with the Father, when he lived on this earth in the weakness of human flesh, he showed us what perfect trust and obedience to God the Father looks like. He came down sharing our humanity. He came down calling us brothers and sisters. And he shows us what perfect worship and trust to God the Father is. But again, he's, his worship is not exactly like ours. He is co-equal with the Father. I and the Father are one, he even says. And so uh, he can both speak about being our brother and in a sense as being our parent. And so again, now the end of verse 13, Behold, I and the children God has given me. He is both, in a sense, our brother. There's other texts such as Romans 8 that use that language as well. And I and the Father are one. He is, he, is not, he is not a sibling on the same level as us. He can also speak of us as being his children. He can also speak of us as being those who belong to him. But again, notice the 
personal aspect of this language now. It is not just that he shares our nature and all of the, the essential truth of those technical human nature uh, aspects of, of the Christian faith. He is also personally calling us as brothers and sisters. And even using the language of family when, when he speaks about his superiority over us. Behold, I am the children God has given me. Jesus Christ leads us in worship as the, the perfect brother, as the one who calls us children also as he, he's leading us. It is by His work that we are brought into the family of faith. It is by His work that we see what perfect worship looks like. See, even when we come to church, even when we come into God's presence in a special way, what, what do we do in God's house? We fail to give the complete praise, attention, and honor that God is worthy of as we are called to do. Even, even in our worship, we, we fail to come before God in the, in the full way that we're called to. But let us be encouraged. Jesus Christ is not only the one who took on human nature and died, Jesus Christ is also the one who embraces us, his people, calls us brethren in the midst of the congregation, in the midst of the church, and worships in that sense with us, showing us what right worship is leading us before God's presence in every way. For all true believers, Jesus not only shares your humanity, He also makes you to share as part of His church family. In, uh, in God's providence, we're going to consider this more in, in terms of a, of a vision in Ezekiel 46 this evening. Uh, but for now, let's let's move to our our third point, that Jesus comes as our helper. He comes as our helper. Now the essential suffering and death of Jesus Christ has already been mentioned in verses 9 and in verse 10. In, in verses 14 and 15, the preacher of Hebrews gives us some specific applications. It's, uh, we might say chapters 10 to 13 are the application-heavy part of the book of Hebrews, but application is sprinkled throughout. And uh, what are two specific ways that the death of Jesus Christ benefits us? First, it removes our fear of death. By partaking of death for our sakes, Christ has destroyed the power of death. Now, death is still called our last enemy. It's something that we still have to face because the body is not yet renewed. It's not an easy thing to face. It's the last enemy. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, after speaking of death as the last enemy, after speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the apostle can then say, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? The devil has even a certain power 
related to death. Ever since the temptation of Eve and instigating the fall of mankind, the, the devil has, has thought that he has dragged all of mankind into the misery of sin and, and death that goes with it. The devil thinks there's, there's no way that mankind can be saved. He thinks that they're like angels, they're like him, that there's no redemption. And so the, the devil thinks, right, I've dragged them all down. They're, they're all now lost in, in death with me. But Jesus Christ has broken the power of death. He therefore breaks also the very fear of death. Death is the last enemy, but the sting is removed by the work of Jesus Christ. Let us not quake in fear before death. And then the the second uh, the second uh, way that this benefits us is closely related to the first, and the preacher of Hebrews speaks of it at the end of verse 15, we're delivered from the bondage of sin. Sin is a lifelong bondage, but in Christ we are delivered from this bondage. Now let's, uh, let's take this and let's make an illustration for, for what sin is. Do you know you know those little uh, those little uh, rubber bracelets that are you know easy to put on, easy to take off. They're very light. They can have all kinds of different messages on them. When when you wear one of those little rubber bracelets, at a certain point you you just forget that you have it on. It's it's not a big deal. It's it's not something that that grabs onto us and, and has a weight to it. It's just oh. Oh, I still have that on? Oh, okay. It's not a heavy thing. It's, it's a light thing. It's no big deal. Sin is, is not like a little rubber bracelet. Sin is the shackles of lifelong slavery. Sin is uh, the, the chains around the neck and the chains around the arms and feet. Chains is bondage. It is a heavy matter. It's not something that you can just forget that you have on. Unless you're insane and you try to ignore it, which is which is what uh, the plight of mankind is, to pretend that sin is not bondage, to pretend that you're not weighed down in the in the bondage of lifelong slavery to sin. Okay. But any sane person who is bound down with the heavy chains of sin would acknowledge the weight of sin. This is what Christ delivers from. The weight of lifelong slavery and the fear of death which is closely re- related to it. That is what Christ breaks. Because He's truly God, He's truly man, He's truly righteous, and He died on the cross to make propitiation for our sins. He took the wrath of God, that's what propitiation means, for the sins of the people. This is verse 17. He breaks those heavy chains of sin. Now, uh, the question for us at this time is, Do we think of sin as a light thing? Or do we see sin 
as the heavy thing which it is. Because the sin of our imperfect worship, we fail to give full praise and honor and glory to God as we ought, and all of the other sins from the first commandment of having perfect dominion over the world, which which we break and we fail to fulfill, to all the other commandments of God. What, what What is the punishment for our sinfulness and our sinful nature in our first parents, Adam and Eve? It is it is death and it is slavery and this is a heavy thing. Confession of sin is is bringing the weighty matter of our own lifelong slavery before God. And deliverance from sin is that heavy bondage lifted, broken, captive, set free by the work of Jesus Christ who alone can bring that deliverance. And that again is not for every single person. It's finally for the offspring of Abraham. So uh, when when we read that language in verse 16, it's it's both another way to speak about Christ really having our human nature while at the same time uh, being a way to say Christ didn't die for every single human being. He died for for the children of faith. He died for the spiritual descendants of Abraham. And that's made clear in the rest of Hebrews, even as that's the same way that the Apostle Paul speaks in Galatians chapter 3. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, may you indeed, by confession of sin and trust in the one God-man, Jesus Christ, be part of the family of faith. See Christ as the one who shares your nature, who also calls you brethren. The one and only merciful and faithful high priest who has delivered us from sin itself. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, our Lord, we praise You for deliverance from the weight of sin.